0: Hi, and welcome. I'm Anna Burns, the Public Programs Manager of uh, Sydney Ideas. Um, Today, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the lands upon which we're hosting this virtual event. We're broadcasting from the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation land. We also want to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands upon which you are all working today and and sitting and listening and um, joining in, and the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people who are joining us for this event. Uh, We pay our respects to elders past, present, and celebrate the diversity of uh, emerging Aboriginal peoples and uh, their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of New South Wales. Uh, We have a powerhouse uh, collection of women here today to reflect on where, where we're at um, for the future of women and work um, and thinking about feminism and what has COVID-19 done to change the, the landscape and game for everyone. Uh, much has changed in the world for women, yet also it hasn't. Uh, gender inequality is all the more highlighted and heightened by the current pandemic. So let's do a quick uh, check-in on the particular point of time that we find ourselves in. In April, we saw 600,000 people become unemployed due to COVID-19 and the unemployment rate went to 1.5 million in a month and it will go higher in September when JobKeeper ends. Uh, last week's figures show unemployment rate at um, 7.4%, the worst in 19 years. McKinsey released a report last week saying that women's jobs are 1.8 times more vulnerable than men's jobs and that women make up 54% of overall job losses globally. This means women's employment is uh, dropping faster than average, even accounting for the fact that men and women work in different sectors. Women are more likely to pick up unpaid labour, they feel the greater weight of caring responsibilities and childcare, and women over 55 make up the greatest uh, cohort of homelessness here in Australia. As youth unemployment grows, so the challenges for uh, young women But it's not all doom and gloom. At the same time, women are more educated than ever and have wider access to platforms and be voices for change. Uh, Since the earliest waves of feminism, the movement has evolved with more attention, there's more intersectionality, and there's more focus on breaking down silos. So before COVID-19 hit, we were already experiencing unprecedented technological change in how and what we did uh, for work. We were seeing a significant demographic change. We were seeing accelerated globalization and the impacts of climate change. There's a lot to digest. Um, as the discussion starts to shift towards recovery, we hope here in Australia, today we're uh, considering how we ensure that women aren't let down, aren't left out, uh, and aren't left behind. And as I said, we have a powerhouse panel of women here with us today. We have Elizabeth Broderick, a lawyer and gender equality and advocate for um, equality. Uh, uh, Elizabeth has been a, a, a driver across um, anti-sex uh, discrimination um, she was the longest serving sex discrimination commissioner and has worked tirelessly to break down structural and social barriers faced by women and men and to promote gender equality we have professor ray cooper from the sydney university business school uh, ray is a professor of gender work and the employment relations and is based in the discipline of work and organizational studies she's also co-director of the women work and leadership research group and editor of the journal of industrial relations Uh, Also here today is Harinder Sidhu from the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Uh, Harinder is a Deputy Secretary at DFAT and has just recently returned from a post as Australia's High Commissioner to India and the um, Ambassador to the Kingdom of Bhutan. And also, Maryam Muhammad co-founder of Money Girl. Mary Muhammad is was born in Pakistan and currently lives in Durag country and she uh, is a community developer. She on, focuses on rallying people behind goals and the capacity to... Uh, to achieve those goals. I'd also like to acknowledge um, and apologise that the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Indigenous Strategy and Services, Professor Lisa Jackson-Pulver, was uh, meant to be joining us today and is unable to, and she sends her apologies for that. So where are we at? It has, um, it's been quite a journey the last couple of months uh, and we're all in this together, but we're not all having the same experiences. So let's kind of take check of where it's at. the gloom, the real, the positive, and I'll start with you, Ray. Current Research
1: Insights, what's the the landscape looking like? Thanks, Anna. Um, I'm I'm here today on Gadigal land as well, so I'd also like to acknowledge uh, Elders past, present and emerging and note, as we do at Sydney Uni, that um, the land was never ceded. Um, So all of the research, including the research that we're doing, in the Women Work and Leadership Research Group at the University of Sydney shows us that women walked into COVID a step behind um, male colleagues and male family members across a range of indicators from pay to seniority to working in undervalued feminised professions um, to taking a greater share of unpaid work at home. Um, However, many of us who research in the world of work and I think in many areas beyond um, have kind of Looked at our research studies and somewhat th- uh, ripped them apart and thought what what will we do next because it has actually um, thrown a lot of our assumptions about the world um, in the air i think and, and i think we'll probably get to that later but i think one of the things that we're finding at, in the women in work and leadership research group is that women even though we stepped in um, behind men Uh, before COVID, um, COVID has actually exacerbated um, some of the inequalities that were pre-existing. I'll just touch really briefly on three of them. Um, The first one is, um, and this is an interesting one, I think, particularly in light of where we've come from in our summer bushfires, where we had a very male-dominated front line and, you know, we had the the heroes were the um, mostly men, not, not all men, but mostly men in yellow sort of fighting fires. In this crisis, this is the first time I can remember where we've had women in the front line. We have our nurses, we have our early childhood educators, uh, you know, we even have cleaners, um, we have our teachers, our retail workers, and they're all very highly feminised occupations. Um, sadly, they're all highly undervalued occupations as well, but they're the front line who are trying to keep us working, keep us safe, Um, you know, and that's a great thing that women are doing, stepping forward and and doing that work. But as I say, um, they're both exposing themselves to risk in terms of the virus, but they're also very undervalued and underpaid, I think, relative to the enormous social benefit of the things that they offer us. The second thing I'd say is that, and you touched on this, Anna, already, um, the McKinsey report showed this, all of the ABS data shows this, all of the government data, the HILDA data, everyone's data says that women have been more profoundly affected in terms of job loss and hours loss. And if we think practically about what that means, um, that means more pay has been lost by women. Um, And because we know that women stepped into COVID uh, well behind men, um, being at best about 14 to 15% behind men in in full-time earnings, That's a real worry um, in terms of what take-home pay is at the moment, but it's also a worry for longer-term implications around um, retirement savings and whatnot. Um, Another issue, and there's been some interesting studies that have come out uh, around this issue, which is about the unpaid work that's going on at home during COVID. So women already did way more work in the home around um, childcare and care of others in in the home, but also unpaid work around... um, other things in the home. So, some interesting research that my colleagues Brendan Churchill and Lynn Craig at the University of Melbourne have shown that whilst women did double what men did before COVID, COVID in fact, it's doubled again during the period um, of COVID. So, um, so, it's sort of compounding inequalities in lots of ways. Um, so, um, I'm, I'm sorry to start with the, uh, the depressing and the negative, but it hasn't been a good time um, for women. Um, I think um, one of the things that's worrying me a lot at the moment is that looking at the recovery strategies that we're moving towards. Um, I'm not sure that those um, recovery strategies are necessarily informed by the fact that women are behind in COVID and those inequalities have been um, continued and enhanced um, during the last few months. Yep,
0: great. (laughs) Thanks, Ray. Liz, Liz, Uh, Do you want to dig into some of what Ray said there, but also thinking about the big changes that are happening right now, but also were happening before um, with technology and thinking about how we have a a, a more just transition?
2: Yeah, thanks very much, Anna. Um, And it's wonderful to be here. And can I too acknowledge I'm on the lands of the Gadigal people of Yairon, aorā Nation and just pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Um, it's wonderful to be with such a great panel and to have such a great audience. I know the Sydney Ideas audience, um, uh, uh, you know, is broad and also likes to think about these issues in depth. So it's great to be here with you all. Um, The fact is we are all in this together, but it's true that we're not all having the same experience. And I think when you look at women, not all women will experience um, the pandemic to the same extent or indeed in the same way. And what we know is that women experiencing multiple forms of discrimination, particularly discrimination based on their um, race, their ethnicity, their class or caste identity will be impacted to a much greater degree. And um, I might just talk a little bit about the role of a working group and just how we're seeing this picture globally. So I'm currently the chair of the Working Group on Discrimination Against Women and Girls. um, And in that role, I'm an independent expert to the United Nations. And I one of the official um, uh, mandates that I have is to write to leaders of nation states bringing to their attention um, human rights violations that are happening in their country. Uh, and I think what we're seeing at the minute is, um, is, you know, a very gendered impact of the pandemic. Um, The fact is, and I just want to give you one example here because it's probably easy to see it in the example, Um, just an official communication that we were involved in recently um, relates to Um, a country in Asia where, like many countries across the world, the vast majority of women will be employed in the informal sector. And as a result of the lockdown in this particular country, a number of young women who were street vendors decided to become digital entrepreneurs because it wasn't possible to sell um, the clothing that they were selling uh, out in the public space. Um, So they started to take their clothing and model it on Facebook Within a few days, the leader of that particular nation made a speech claiming that women were damaging the country's morality, they were damaging um, the culture of the country, and indeed, police officers were sent round um, to arrest these women. Um, They were made to read out confessions on Facebook, Um, and it all started, really, because they chose to move, or they, in a sense, were forced to move from um, selling their public wares Uh, into the digital environment. And as we would all say, you know, for women and young women who are often feeding their families, um, it's the very survival uh, which is so necessary. So I think it's an example of dis- gender discrimination that's emerging at this time that we mightn't otherwise be thinking about. We might say, well, lockdowns and responses to the COVID-19 pandemic actually impact everyone equally. And the reality is that they don't. So just coming on to what are the other trends that are affecting women in the world of work? And these trends are continuing through COVID and we'll continue post-COVID. And there are really four trends. One is uh, technological change, and we might talk a bit about that later. Uh, Demographic change, there I'm talking about the ageing of the world's population, but also the the youth bulge that we're seeing in African nations and also um, in the Pacific. Uh, The other thing is the impact of accelerated globalisation, and the fissuring of workplaces, um, gig economy, and then finally we're seeing um, a movement from many countries to more sustainable economies, and that's having an impact for women as well. So these um, issues uh, are affecting women in the changing world of work, and it's up to us to start to put women at the centre and re- transform and reimagine um, both work, but also economies, and it'll be great to talk about that later on.
0: A huge amount to, to dig into there, which segues quite nicely into um, Harinder. Uh, Harinder, you've got a a, a couple of. Um, of complementary perspectives here you've got the working in Australia um, and being part of DFAT and also having come back from overseas you've got that international and local perspective which segues nicely from from Liz's points Um, where where do you you know with those dual perspectives that you have like where do you where's what's the
3: update from from your side Thanks, Anna. And uh, of course, I should also acknowledge that I'm speaking from Ngunnawal land, and I want to pay my respects to the elders, past, present, and emerging uh, from from these lands as well. Thank you. Um, yes, I have two hats. Now it's very interesting for me. I returned to Australia just as the COVID epidemic was hitting, a pandemic was hitting, and uh, we, uh, as Foreign Affairs and Trade, I'm a senior officer, obviously. Um, completely pivoted our work. And so we've seen, a dr- like most organisations, a dramatic change in how we work. Uh, about 80% of us went onto flexible and remote working, uh, which was, you know, we think is actually a good thing because before that um, we had something like about 73% on on remote working were women but now you have women men at all levels through the organization having this lived experience of flexible working and I think that that's revolutionized how we think about work and will be a sustained uh, piece of work. Uh, It dovetails very nicely with the work that we've been doing since 2014 on women and leadership in our organization uh, where we've been able to really focus on the fact that even though we're a department with about 57 to 60 percent women. We only in 2014 had about 34% of them in senior leadership and only 27% of heads of mission were women. We've taken those numbers up to 40% uh, of senior leaders are now women and 43% of heads of mission are women in in foreign affairs now. So that's actually a tremendous uh, achievement. But at the same time, well, we had all these good things happening, on flexible working, on people really galvanising to, to do the work to bring Australians home and to support Australians around the world. Um, we, of course, had to take care for the safety of our staff and brought quite a number of them home, many um, voluntarily, some uh, we had to direct, obviously. Um, but what we found was that most, uh, there is probably a predominance of women who have chosen to come home to be with their families for very good reasons. Um, But we do need to um, be conscious that that has impacts uh, not just on people's personal lives, obviously, but also on their professional uh, aspirations down the track. But on the other hat that I wear, of course, is foreign affairs, uh, helping people overseas, and uh, all those things that Liz talks about in our development program, we see in spades in all the areas that we've been working in. Um, we've seen the effects, really, of economic pressure on hitting women very hard uh, in terms of their uh, labour force participation. Of course, India is one place I watch very closely. It has one of the lowest female labour force participation rates in the world at 24% on par with Saudi Arabia. Uh, so uh, as elsewhere in the world, I think women are carrying a lot of the burden of that and are facing the effects, are the first to face the effects of um, of the economic pressure, the first to lose their jobs. Uh, they have poorer access to healthcare, poorer access to technology, which limits their ability to do things uh, in alternative ways. Um, the rise in gendered violence um, as a result of uh, um, people being in lockdown and being without work, those kinds of things we're starting to see hit a lot. Um, and uh, sometimes actually less nutrition as families have less to eat women are often the last ones to eat. So I think, you know, where we have felt, uh, we would have said six or eight months ago, we were on the road and we were starting to make progress both in our own organisation and internationally. One of the things that the COVID crisis has really shown us is just how precarious that progress
2: has been.
0: Precariousness is um, one of the the big kind of defining themes for 2020 right um and and even more kind of for for women's experience beyond this year of course um mariam precariousness is a nice segue for you uh financial literacy is a is a real um focus of your work Mm -hmm. Um, and when we're talking about all of of these big themes that that everyone else has sort of been unpacking for us is you know um independence work financial literacy uh it all comes back to that so tell me a little bit tell us all a little bit about money girl um and and why why and how you kind of decided to tackle that issue
4: Absolutely, so um, I am coming to you, as Anna mentioned, from the country today. And the why and how of Money Girl is um, to improve young women's financial literacy in Australia. So they are equipped with the resources and confidence to make better financial decisions for their futures. And the why is simple. Like everyone before me has said, the issues we are going to talk about today have existed before COVID. COVID is simply uh, kind of highlighting and making those issues more apparent for us because it is a very gendered epidemic. So before COVID even hit, we knew that for uh, an Australian woman, she would enter the workforce earning 14 to 15% less, like Ray said. She would then take on most of the carer responsibilities for her family throughout her life, taking time out of her career which impacts um, which impacts their pay impacts promotion opportunities and by the which means by the end of their careers, women are retiring with almost half so about $250,000 less in their superannuations than their male counterparts in Australia, right? Now, this was the case in normal Australia. And that is why I'm doing the work of financial literacy through Money Girl. Now, COVID exacerbates a lot of those issues. Like we were saying, women are overrepresented in the industry's that have been the most hit. They are on the front lines, but also they are overrepresented in the industries that are being least supported and uh, most impacted, which includes hospitality, which includes child care. Another issue with those industries, I'm sure we will go in later, is they have a very casualized workforce. They have an underpaid workforce. So those issues are being compounded. Women are overrepresented in those, eco- those industries. They have a casualized workforce. They have an underpaid workforce, and they are the least supported in the um, what do you say? The responses that we are uh, that that we are, or the policies that we have rolled out, right? Then on top of that, another, another, the, the hidden pandemic behind it all, women are, being, are, are trapped at home and home is not necessarily always the safest place for women. And so we've seen a rise in domestic violence, not just in Australia, but around the world. And that's the shadow pandemic that impacts women more than Anyone else, right? So yeah. we, and then we have to consider that, like Liz mentioned, there are some intersectionalities within these impacts. So women from certain classes, races, um, and sexualities will be impacted more by the violence, by being caught at jobs. Some people will be experiencing the impacts of this pandemic more than others, right? So those are the challenges uh, that lie ahead for for Australian women uh, and women around the world. But I do see an opportunity, especially for young women, as we enter the workforce, is this recession that has been brought on by the pandemic is impacting women more than anybody else. And so for once, we are trying to bring women to the center of this conversation and talking about how structures that are built into the economy do not favor women or actively work against women. And that includes things like childcare, right? How childcare prevents women from going back to work full time after they have had children. So I do see an opportunity in, the, in this conversation shaping a better workplace that is genuinely inclusive of genders. Um, and another thing is the... Uh, impact it has had on workplaces and how business is done has kind of uh, clarified to everyone that what women have been saying about inclusive workplaces for a very long time is not just a feminist issue. It is an issue for everybody. Now we are seeing today that like Ray was saying, the workplace is becoming more uh, Um, diverse in how work is being done. The workplace is becoming more flexible with its work arrangements with hours and all of those things because for once, uh, women haven't had to tell people that flexible work arrangements actually result in better outcomes. It is a staring people right in the face because Necessity is the is the mother of innovation, right? So we've had to uh, resort to flexible work arrangements and stuff, and we've realized that work can be done just as well from home. And so we're trying. These ideas have become mainstream, like flexible work, uh, working from home. Um, and I think that, that does present an opportunity for us to ride this wave while this conversation is mainstream and not just a conversation that women are starting and having and solidify those policies into workplace cultures so that we don't go back to the old normal, which was not serving us so well.
0: Yes, um, so what I want to get into now is the, is the, the where and the how you've all kind of teased at this idea that there's, there have been some, some really challenging and very concerning Things that have unfolded in the last few months, but there has also been a bit of optimism and um, and a really massive shift in terms of as we've also said around the, the you know the view of flexible working, um, and and what that can mean for women. There's an opportunity there. It can also mean a whole lot of a whole lot of extra work as well. So how do we how do we um, balance out a uh, a future that avoids sort of systemic disadvantage for? For, for a certain generation or a certain uh, tier of workers? Um, and also how do we kind of be mindful of the pipeline? Because there's a lot of, you know, you sort of said, Harinda, about women coming back from overseas. There was more women coming back from overseas because of family and those concerns. Like how do we, how do we find the right balance? What, what, yeah, million-dollar question for, for anyone who wants to take it. Um, how, do we, how do we get the best of this and um,
1: move forward? Might I start, Anna? Um, So I think um, one thing I think we need to really reflect on is um, something you hinted to at at there, which is that um, we have a very highly educated, uh, very capable young female labour force in Australia. We've been doing um, some research um, in the Australian Women's Working Futures project here at the University of Sydney, which is um, looking at what young women uh, want experience um, from work and also uh, what they hope for and fear in the future. Um, Now, keeping in mind that our under our under-45 workforce in Australia um, is um, is among the most highly educated of the... Our female um, young workers are among the most highly educated of the OECD's um, prime age workforces. So we, we ha- actually have a real gift here amongst our, our labour force and and, yet, and young women are actually much more qualified than young men are. Um, and when we do research with them and talk to them about what they want to achieve in their careers and their future, they um, don't have... sense that what they want to do is make that Sophie's Choice that many of the generations prior to them have had to make, which is between, uh, you know, a a great career on one hand and a family life on the other. What they expect to be able to do is to be able to combine both in a way that allows them to work in good jobs, not necessarily dead-end jobs. Um, So I think that's something that we have to keep in mind. Um, I think it's also important to, to know that we have some gaps there already in terms of what these young women are facing. And when we ask them what they, Nominators, the most important thing in a future job for them they talk about two key things there's, there's many issues it's quite a complex picture but the majority um so 81 percent say um these two things one is employment security and we can see that that has been smashed apart as a part of COVID so that's the thing they value the most in a future job but they also value being treated with respect um and when we talk to them both in, in interviews and focus groups they tell us that there are some gaps going on there so and what I'm trying to say there about the evidence I think what we need to know is we've got a highly capable female labour force they have real aspirations for their career we're not necessarily meeting what what, the things that they want from their careers and we've got quite a bit of work to do because this uh, young female labour force is a force to be reckoned with and I think um, employers and governments really need to pay some attention to to what it is that they're after and they want to seek to achieve after their own investments in themselves in and their own development. So Liz, I'm going to come back to you because it seems like there's a,
0: a, a an issue of risk management here. How do we do we need to change the narrative slightly?
2: Um, I, yeah. Uh, I do think we need to change the narrative, Anna, because a lot of the issues that we've all been talking about, they in the past will have been seen as women's issues. In fact, they're absolutely core to business continuity risk management i mean if you weren't able to move your workers from the office to the home working from home and i'm talking about non-essential non-frontline workers here but if you weren't able to move them very quickly from the office to home then your business had no way of continuing so flexible work which we've always thought about as a women's issue is not it's to business continuity and not only that what we've learned through the pandemic is It wasn't the technology that was stopping us from embracing flexibility in all its form. It was inertia and habit. And um, I think there's some good learning from that. Having said that, I'm not suggesting that working from home necessarily represents flexible work because flexibility is about control as to where and when you work. Um, And for most people, they were mandated to work from home. But I think what we learned is that work is not a place that you go, it's what you do. um, And we need to extrapolate with that. But the other thing, Anna, and maybe just lifting up, because I agree with everything that Ray said, putting it in the, the global context, I mean, what are the influences, as I said before, that will change work for everyone and how will that work for women? And we talked about technological examples. And I think the thing about technology and, the, and we're seeing accelerated digitization at the minute as a result of COVID. But technology for women um, and for others, it's increased our access to distance learning, which is um, important for women, but also networks. I've seen, uh, because I've consulted from my global thematic report in every region of the world, and what I've seen is through technology, women in different countries can now collectively organise and strengthen their political voice where it's too risky to do it in an individual country. So just to give you an example, I was recently in Ethiopia and I saw women from different African nations advocate for change in other nations. And they were able to do that through a much um, better level of collective organising. I also saw though that with the growth of digital platforms and particularly including the gig economy, there was a heightening of women's economic inequality because there was increased informalization of work. And the trouble, so I suppose the downside of technology for many women is that the gig economy in a sense is an expansion of a kind of informal work that women have always or traditionally undertaken. And there I'm thinking about women peace workers you know peace was, so they they were particularly garment industry um, in the past. Now we're kind of going back to that women peace workers, but we're using technological platforms. and I think there's a real risk that the move to online platforms risks substituting, Um, a digital sweatshop for a traditional one. So there are some limitations there and also the digital divide. I mean, if women don't have access to internet, to smart technology in the way that men have, and we know there's about 400 million, I think it is, less tablets in the hands of women than men, um, then their ability to participate in this new world will be reduced. Their ability to access jobs in high growth areas, such as the renewable sector, will be reduced. And not only that, the um, lack of women in STEM and particularly technology profession means that the design of technology will likely, and I'm not saying necessarily intentionally, but will likely entrench a male-dominated view of the world. So I really wanted to just maybe put that shift. And the only other shift I'd like to mention is this shift to sustainable economies and just transitions, because it does hold huge opportunity for women's employment. I mean, when you look at the data, it shows that women are more likely to be employed in the renewable sector than, say, compared with fossil fuels. But If we continue with the structural discrimination that we see in workplaces, and there I'm talking about the strong degrees of occupational segregation, we will see that structural discrimination just replicated in these new high growth sectors. Um, And the strategies around that would be things like temporary special measures, um, targets, those types of things to ensure that women are equally represented um, in growth areas with men. so they're just some of the, uh, I think, some of the issues that we need to address um, in uh, the future changes of work.
0: So, Harinda, there's a, there's a theme here that that, I, that you've got a, around um, internal and external, and that sort of seems to be, there's, there's a, that can work on a, on a bunch of levels. Do, do you want to unpack that a little bit for us? Because there's this theme of, you know, informal, working from home, you know, internal, external, domestic, and at work, but
3: but it's bigger than that. Do you want to unpack that a bit for us yeah um so it's basically you know what is happening in the home what is happening uh outside the home are things we need to balance but also I guess when I talk about internal external it's it's really very evident to me that what is happening in Australia sometimes is very similar to what is happening in other countries but actually if we're talking about our region which is where I focus a great deal there's a tremendous gap between what's happening here and what's happening overseas. We're facing a disruption. Um, this is a disruption to scale of which we have not seen for a very long time. Um, you know, We have uh, seen every country in the world hit with the same uh, event, including in Australia with the, with the coronavirus. Um, and there are two things that can happen, uh, that do happen or can happen. One is that uh, everyone uh, is so narrowly focused on dealing with the disruption that the sorts of things we think about in terms of um, uh, gender equality or uh, equity, uh, they sort of get thrown out the window because they're seen as nice to have rather than need to have. Um, so what happens is we have this reversion to type, I suppose, uh, in the way that people start to think about it because this is really vital, this is important, we have to save lives, and we'll do all that other stuff. The other way you can think about it, if you have the bandwidth, is to recognise, and this is about being strategic, that a disruption gives you a, an opportunity to reconceive how you might build your society or how you might, uh, you know, uh, create... Uh, the way that you might want to work. And so when we're thinking about, and in fact, certainly my organisation is thinking about this quite deeply at the moment, not just how can we actually harness those positives and embed them in a, in a different an, a different imagined view of the world going forward, but actually what does that mean in terms of our work that we do, particularly with developing countries in our region? So I'll give you one example. We ha- we're, we're looking at how we pivot our development policy to support the countries in the region that are being hit with with, uh, COVID and how do we sustain our gender programs in that space because uh, those governments are the ones that don't have the bandwidth really to think about this. One of the programs we have in the Pacific is called Markets for Change and um, that's been a program that's run for a long time in places like Papua New Guinea that has ensured physical safety of women who are selling their produce at local markets. It supports their economic need. More than ever, women need those um, need access. Um, but we've adapted that now to also support women to... Um, provide home deliveries of their products so they can continue to sell their products to disseminate information about um, uh, hand washing and um, being Physically and staying healthy and safe, so they can sustain their business. So it's it's really not losing sight of the fact that you can't let those things fall back. Because once you do, you're starting from a much lower base to bring things forward again. So just as we're thinking about what we need to do here in Australia, there's a real recognition that we can't allow the gulf between what happens at home and what happens. In our region to grow too wide um, because coming back from that is going to take so much longer and is actually going to absorb more resources in the long term.
0: So we've got a bunch of questions coming through on Slido. And if you're wanting to participate in that, the uh, the code is, so go to Slido and then use work as the code. Um, and some of them actually are really picking up on this theme of what's nice to have and what do we need to have. Uh, the first question we might go to is from anonymous and it says, Ray, what should the government be doing as part of the COVID recovery to not only guard against exacerbating inequality, but also make progress on gender equality? I think
1: that's raised Start with you, but I think everyone's probably got some thoughts on that one. It's a great question. I think that's the question at the moment. Um, so, uh, look, we're hearing a, a lot of talk about snapback um, and, you know, re- recover. You know, in terms of what recovery looks like. I think probably all of the panel would agree that there's so much room to improve before COVID hit us that, in fact, we don't really want to snap back. We want to try to do something like snap forward to somewhere different, uh, where we're trying to get rid of some of those inequalities that pre-existed before we entered into this dreadful couple of months. Um, but I think w- one thing that's um, concerning us in our research group at the moment is trying to look at ways that we can start to design for recovery that aren't, uh, that doesn't only have a focus on men's jobs. Um, so a, a lot of the um, pronouncements that we've had in, from the policymakers uh, around how we're going to recover from the process has been around uh, the sort of language of having a shovel-led recovery. Um, Now, whilst it's really important, I'd be the last person in the world to suggest that government shouldn't be investing in infrastructure and shouldn't be investing in jobs, in important jobs in infrastructure and construction. But I do think we need to think a little bit more broadly about how we um, build resilience in the economy and how we can make that an inclusive um, process. So we saw some little gems of um, hope, I thought, um, in the early period of COVID in in the government's response um, around things such as highly subsidised childcare, um, and around things such as, you know, putting um, JobKeeper into areas such as early childhood educators' wages. Yeah, I was really disappointed to see that the the pulling back uh, from those initiatives, which um, you know really allowed us to keep moving um, to an extent, and actually I think have a a really significant impact on Australian women's uh, jobs and their working futures. So I'd like to see us um, having a look at uh, what what do we conceptualise as recovery, and can we please just take note of the fact that the majority of people who are being affected as a part of this um, COVID crisis because of where they work and because of the types of contracts. they're employed on are women and try to build that in. I guess the other thing that I'd say is we need to start to rethink some of the things that have made women more vulnerable in this process. One of them is that women work in highly feminised employment and many of those jobs are very highly undervalued. Yet yeah, we saw a really interesting essential poll a couple of weeks ago, I'm not sure if other panel members saw it, which was questioning about the value of the payments to highly feminised jobs that have been so critical in the COVID response. One of the examples was early childhood educators and one of the examples was around registered nurses and midwives. And it was I was interested to see that a, a majority of Australians su- su- suggest that nurses and midwives are paid way under the value that they perform for us. So I think the community is kind of getting there, but I think we need to think through how we use our industrial relations system or how we how we use other mechanisms to try to value highly feminised work more. And the last thing I'd say is in terms of recovery, it's more of a systemic issue. Um, but one of the reasons why women have been so profoundly affected as a part of the crisis has been because they suffer from precarious employment. And I think we need to start to have a look at, rather than talking about snapping back to where we were before, to actually take a look to see what what as a community do we want our labour force to look like? And and are we okay with the fact that we actually have large and growing numbers of people, um, many of them women, on precarious contracts, um, working in the gig economy, working um, often in unpaid work in order to access the labour market um, and and to investigate some of the assumptions that we've got going on there? I think if we worked on some of those areas as a part of the recovery and actually start to think more broadly about, um, you know, putting a gendered lens across recovery, I think that might go some way towards doing something slightly different and taking us to a better place than just snapping back from, from this current crisis.
4: Now, could I jump in there to say, Ray just uh, said gendered lens and we need an intersectional gendered lens on recovery as well. So speaking of how can we move forward, how can recovery happen? It will not happen. It will not happen if you are sitting on tables making decisions where everyone looks just like you. And the question, the latest question that is just coming in, like, where are the men at? Well, uh, this, this is not a table for the men. There are plenty of table where the men are leading, but they will not be finding the solutions if they are sitting on those tables with a token woman um, is not how recovery will happen. Because as Ray was saying, the, the workforce that is coming in, um, highly educated young women, if we want the economy to recover, now speaking in terms of money, if nothing else, um, we are not going to make the right decisions that will take that into account. That is why the recovery plan so far has not taken women and how the pandemic is impacting women into account. And like Minister Fletcher was saying on last week's. ABC or something, uh the QA. Um, we will only know after the pandemic and after we have been through it what impact it's gonna have on the economy in terms of the gendered impact, etc. The reason he says that, the reason the government says that is because the the table that they're sitting on doesn't include people that are being impacted in Australia. And when we say women, we don't just mean have that one white woman on the table. We mean have a variety of people on the table, have have, have your indigenous people on the table, have black and brown people on the table as well. Because they can tell you, instead of waiting until it is over, We can tell you now how it is going to impact the Australian economy in the future. And so instead of waiting and failing, we can address those issues right now. And to incentivize um, the men who are in leadership to take take these issues seriously and bring more people into their boardrooms, I would say that women and okay, with young people, not just women, right? All young people, we are your employees today or your future employees. We are your customers today or future customers. We are your voters today or future voters, right? And these are issues that are important to young millennials and Gen Zs um, and millennials in general, right? And we, like, if... If these issues are not taken seriously, there are, like Liz was saying, it's an issue of business continuity. There are serious repercussions for businesses uh, and organizations that don't take it seriously. Uh, You will see it all all around. Uh, We see it in the example of how AMP handled its uh, sexual discrimination suit. Um, There are real repercussions to businesses taking bad decisions because young people take these issues seriously, let me tell you. And at the moment, young people hold every third dollar in circulation going forward. That is only going to increase. Young people have a significant amount of power that we exercise through our votes in dollar terms. So these are real issues for business continuity that need to be addressed.
0: So, I want to pick up on something that Miriam thank you um, there 's a question here from Joanna, which is asking whether or not the government is um, supporting real jobs and and I wonder here, Liz, perhaps you might want to comment on um, do we have an issue with 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 value that some jobs are seen not just more that some jobs are more valuable than others but that we there 's a, dis, um, a disconnect between feminized jobs not being as real as um, as others perhaps
2: yeah um absolutely and can I just start even before that and I just say Mariam I couldn't agree more with you I mean we need diverse voices in our rebuilding and recovery efforts and that's one of the things that I'm seeing across the world that we're that you know largely um the you know the the you know, strategies and initiatives being developed are coming from a very homogeneous group in global COVID response teams across the world. So if we could do one thing, I think, you know, that would be fantastic to make them more diverse. But, yeah, coming back to um, women's work and whether there's real jobs and then there's other jobs and the other jobs are the feminised jobs, um, I think it comes back to the points that Ray made about... You know, a lot of the language, I mean, language is so important. We talk about shovel-ready jobs and I absolutely agree with Ray, infrastructure at this time is absolutely critical and big infrastructure programs are critical. But what about social infrastructure? Because we've said here that if we are going to move forward on gender equality, one of the most important things we can do is to recognise, reduce and redistribute unpaid care and domestic work between men and women. And that means we need an investment in care services. I'd put elder care equally with the ageing of the world's population. We need it in childcare. Um, We need, of course, universal parental policies, which we have uh, kind of moved forward here in Australia. But the problem is that caring is still women's work, Um, whether that's unpaid or paid care work. And it is invaluable. uh, It is invisible, and it's undervalued. And the reality is that current economic models thrive on women's unpaid care and domestic work. It's the type of work that sustains entire economies, yet it's undervalued and invisible. And as the question said, it's seen as a lesser version of work, therefore it's paid less. And um, I think the impact of that is it depletes women's time and it also depletes their economic security. So yes. Um, we need a strong investment in that way. In fact, if I had to say, if there was one thing that we should do, I do think it's about the redistribution of paid and unpaid work um, here in Australia.
0: So, one of the themes that was raised at the very beginning um, was around one of our strengths here in Australia is that we have a highly educated workforce um, and that young women, the next generation of women, are the most educated. Um, in history Uh, and Nick has asked a question which is the most popular question so far about the government what will the effects be of the government's refusal to support universities during COVID-19 and what will that be on women and what impact is that going to have in the short and long term and this is a massive question that could we could spend probably many hours unpacking Um,
1: but who would like to Ray (laughs) But i start I, i'm pretty sure that miriam will have something to say too um look it's been such a wonderful thing as an academic um, at a one of our wonderful australian institutions watching the news every night watching 7 30 watching all of the you know um social media and looking at all of our fantastic academics across the country um giving commentary on um you know the pandemic in um you know health terms in terms of looking at um capacity to treat Um, the disease, about the economic impact, about the impact on things such as violence and whatnot. And I feel so proud as an academic watching people from across institutions being able to speak to the public about what are pretty complex research agendas, um, where people are trying really to put towards the the public good. And and that is what universities really are all about. However, I've been really disappointed at the lack of support that um, uh, education generally and higher education in particular has had from government as a part of the process that's going on at the moment. Um, And that has implications that go to um, our notion as being a clever country, but it also has implications in terms of um, the broader sort of social impact that universities have, but also in a gendered sense, because we know that workforces in higher education are highly Highly feminised, um, and particularly, um, unfortunately, at the lower levels within our classifications. Um, but I think this can have, a, a, you know, really significant impact uh, longer term on the broader economy. So, uh, for, for me, you know, I'm I'm a very proud um, higher education advocate. Um, for me, I've been very disappointed with government's response. Um, in the context of COVID to not supporting um, in a more active way the operation of our wonderful institutions in higher education. But at the same time, I've been incredibly proud of the way that my colleagues um, from the sciences through to the social sciences have responded and stepped up to um, communicate our research to um, uh, the population more broadly and to, to try to make a contribution towards trying to solve this mess that we're in at the moment.
0: Mariam, did you have anything else you wanted to...
4: There. No, I think Ray and Liz have already covered off everything that I was thinking of predominantly around paid and unpaid work and paid childcare. And there is actually a question here about um, supporting both like all all parents to take on better part-time roles and uh, uh, childcare activities. And I think neither parent is able to do it uh, until we are not addressing um, the unpaid work that is being done uh, in terms of care and also not supporting childcare. Neither of the parents will really be able to um, recoup the economy from the massive deficit that we are in. Absolutely.
0: Harinda, you, you, um, you mentioned something, I'm going to segue slightly, but looking at, you know, employment sustainability and these, these ideas about, you know, the future and, 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 um, and women's financial security. You mentioned something uh, about at DFAT, the the, um, the acquisition kind of, the, the pipeline that they were, you'd seen a real kind of um, scissor graph, I guess, that there was, you know, a steady stream of people coming, and this is a, a theme across any number of industries where there's a steady stream of, of women coming in, but they drop out. Um, and perhaps you've got some insights from how DFAT has handled that to help answer this question here about ensuring employment sustainability and how women can sort of...
3: Yeah, so thanks. The, I think the main thing we did was actually focus on it. We'd had a situation where for over 30 years uh, we had always recruited 50-50 men and women, not by any target or anything, just really merit. That's how we did it. And then we saw uh, the dropout at the leadership level and it was something we observed in 2014. Now you can talk about a pipeline all you like, but 30 years down the track, these women have had grandchildren by then and they're still not uh, working their way through the pipeline, so something is very wrong. Uh, And and so with Liz Broderick's help, um, we were able to uh, lead a process, uh, a very, very, uh, very powerful process through the place of, of stopping for a minute and just asking the question why that is, and then noticing um, when women were not represented or were not applying, and starting to actively encourage women to apply for senior positions or for ambassador positions. And it's really, a, a, it seems like a really simple thing to do, um, but if the DFAT story of sort of, you know, nearly, um, you know, sort of increasing by nearly. Uh, twofold um the numbers of heads of mission who are women has come about not really through uh, a selection bias but actually just through encouraging more women to put their hand up and then realizing how very many talented women we have there who can do that task Uh, I think that that takes us a long way there. And often it is the case, as you want to expand that out to a more general proposition, often it's the case that we believe that including women in the economy or including women in work or in leadership positions is very hard work. And, yes, of course there are a great deal of barriers to get through and there are lots of structural work to do. But it's remarkable how far you can go when you just start by noticing their absence and encouraging their presence. And that's really a very powerful place to go. I'm not suggesting that was all we did. Of course, we did quite a number of things as well, but it's always struck me as how extraordinary it is that people don't seem to notice that women are absent from a spectrum. Particularly the High commissioner in New Delhi um, it was, uh, manuals are something that people are starting to recognise there, but it was not uncommon to go to places where women were just absent, they just weren't there. Uh, and uh, and it was particularly obvious because I was there and I was sort of standing out. And I think that there's a lot more we can do uh, across the board in Australia and elsewhere um, by taking that very first step. Because from there, you then start putting systems in place and thinking about that. And if we're talking about the recovery uh, and women are not there, then we really should start by noticing that and then thinking about what it is we can do to, to fix that situation. In the end, I just wanted to say one thing, um, which is that if we are conceiving about of the... Uh, economy and society that we're going to have at the end of this process whatever whatever time it ends or whenever it ends we've got to start that conception now and we've got to start building towards that now and we we can't afford any kind of economic recovery if women are not there, um, 50% of our population cannot be excluded from this. In fact, all the data and Liz and Ray of no doubt and, and Mariam are right across this. All the data says that you're always going to do worse if you exclude women. If we want an economic recovery, this is where we have to focus and, and, uh, I guess I'm a member of the government. I know that a lot of um, good evidence-based policy work is underway and I'm certain that that is being factored in. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Harinda. Um, I'm going to do a quick wrap-up now because we're almost out of time. Uh, Liz, I'm going to come back to you and ask, like, if there's one thing, one action, one key point that you want people to take out of today, what is that and, and, and who needs to do it?
2: I suppose one key point, but I would absolutely agree with Harinda. We have an amazing opportunity at the minute. You know, the assumptions that have underpinned practices and structures in the past are no longer necessarily valid. So this is an incredible time to think about putting gender equality front and centre. And we do that not particularly to preference women. Gender equality is good for society, it's good for the rebuilding of economies, um, it's good for families, so everyone benefits. So I'd be putting gender equality front and centre and to do that I would be asking what I call the gender question. I'd ask in relation to all the new initiatives that we're looking at um, implementing, will these initiatives benefit men and women equally? Um, Because then at least it exposes you know, impacts, which we may not have initially thought of when we started to design some of the policy solutions. So that's what I'd be doing. And I'd also make a special plug for care. And I'd be talking about men and care, because until we see a better redistribution of unpaid care work between men and women, we won't enable the amazing talent of women in this nation to actually be harnessed. And just picking up on that raised statistic there, um, that women were doing the lion's share of care coming into the pandemic, that's doubled. So it's just going to make it that much difficult if we don't really address the issue of who does care in this country.
1: We're getting a good list here. Um, Ray? Uh, I agree absolutely with my two colleagues. Um, I I would almost repeat what they have to say. But I'd, I'd also say let's value women more. Um, And that means valuing their contribution wherever it is, whether it's at home um, in unpaid work or whether it's at work in um, paid work. And particularly, we could make a lot of inroads if we're trying to revalue um, and properly pay people working in very uh, feminised occupations. That would go a long way towards helping us um, make some real um, inroads in terms of the gender pay gap. I'd also say, rather than, um, I see there were some comments earlier this week about uh, young women. Um, and young people and how uh, resilient or not they are in in, um, current workplaces. I'd say rather than um, making those sorts of um, what I would say slightly in the current context mean comments about younger people, I think we have to acknowledge that young people face a really different labour market to the the generations before them, particularly boomers and and older, Um, and we need to acknowledge that their experience has been... um, very different it's about insecure work it's about unpaid work and it's about insecure contracts and let's try to do something about that for our future workforce which which is young women who are highly educated and very ambitious about what they want to achieve for themselves and for their families. Harinda? Oh we've lost you.
3: I, I'm just learning how to work my mute button. Um, now, I don't really have much more to add. I think um, I know the time is short, but I think I've said my piece. Thank you. Thank you. Um,
4: and Mariam, last word to you. Thank you, Anna. So I, um, I would say young people are not less resilient. We just have a much lower threshold for bull. And that's why, as employees, we will literally ghost you if you're being less than good to your to, to other employees to women and um, other people I would say that um, going forward um, leaders of organizations need to question whether they have a genuine um, policy genuine outlook towards diversity and inclusion in general so that's not just women it is All people. And let me tell you non performative, genuine diversity policies, because we can see right through your bullcrap policies, right? Performative um, one woman on the board, performative one black person on the board, we can see right through that. And that is not going to get you through a global pandemic that is bringing the world to its knees. Okay. We need genuine inclusion because those people will then be able to tell you, look, I can foresee people coming back to work need paid childcare, right? Why do we need to wait for COVID to end for someone to tell a a white minister that we need paid childcare for people to come back to work, right? Um, We need genuine uh, part-time roles that are not just full-time jobs compressed into two, three days for people to be able to genuinely work flexibly and build the economy so long as we are not enabling all people to come back to work. There will be 50% of our population will be sitting at home taking care of children because they, it just doesn't make economic sense to send children to daycare, pay daycare, and go back to work, right? So if we are to conceptualize what this economy will look like post-COVID, you need to act now, not just talk about having more women, more people of color on your boards. You need to do it right now to come out better on the other end. Thanks for listening to the Sydney
0: Ideas podcast. For more information, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen ideas. It's where you'll find the transcript for this podcast and our contact details if you'd like to get in touch with a question or feedback. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss a new episode. Search for Sydney Ideas on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Finally, we want to acknowledge that this podcast was made in Sydney, which sits on the land of the
1: Gadigal people of the Euro Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built.